Well, here we are. It is time, Simba. If you understand that reference, you might be about the age where we should be working together. It's possible. But it is now one of three times a year that I'm accepting clients for my freedom framework, overcoming food sensitivities and increasing energy without unnecessary restriction. My goal for my one-on-one clients is to take them through frameworks and explore tools for achieving 50, 80, 90% of their goals in just a few months and show them how to continue to heal on their own so they don't need me anymore. Honestly, I think we're doing great one-on-one work here, helping women that would otherwise be falling through the cracks, thinking that they're just aging, that they're just moms, that they just, and it may be true that they just have stress when really those stress hormones and their other core systems just really need some serious support and some serious love to serve them for years to come without symptoms. So if you'd like to clear inflammation, eczema, food sensitivities, or improve energy and brain clarity, I'd love to chat with you. You can book a call with me at kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, kristabigler.com forward slash FSS. And that link will be in the show notes. The sort of game is, if you want to improve how you feel, you've either got to get your sleep debt down, or you've got to rearrange your day, not based on your time, but based on when you have your peaks and dips in energy. Welcome to the Less Stressed Life Podcast, where our only priority is providing those aha moments to uplevel your life, health, and happiness. Your host, integrative dietitian nutritionist Krista Bigler, helps health-conscious women reduce the stress and confusion around food, fatigue, digestive, and skin issues at lessstressnutrition.com. Now, on to the show. The Less Stress Life podcast is hiring a podcast operations manager estimated to start at five to seven hours a week with growth opportunity. You'll be in charge of production, publication, show notes, and descriptions, but not editing. And you'll also help with managing sponsors, contracts, and guests once you are comfortable with production. Technical skills and experience are required and health background is a definite bonus. You can learn more about all the details at lsljobs.com to apply now. That's lsljobs.com for the application and full description. All right, today on The Less Stressed Life, we have Jeff Kahn. And Jeff is the CEO and co-founder of Rise Science. And Rise is a sleep app. It is the only app that delivers real-world benefits of better sleep and daily energy. So we'll talk all about it because this is a... I love this topic. (laughs) Jeff and his Rise Science co-founder were the first to publish research on tech-enabled sleep behavior modification over a decade ago. And they've recently completed the largest known sleep study on sleep and real-world job performance across the NFL and sales teams. Jeff's research and work have been featured in the New York Times, Harvard Business Review, Wall Street Journal, and on ESPN, NBC, CBS, and Fox Sports. He holds a BS in health systems engineering and an MS in engineering design and innovation from Northwestern. Welcome, Jeff. Really, really fun to be here. And, you know, Chris, anytime I get a chance to talk about a topic that I've been steeped in the last 10 years of my life, I just love it. So thanks for having me on. Yeah. Well, let's get back to 10 years ago and why you got into this topic in the first place. I don't even know the right question there. It's like, because it's (laughs) not like you just say, I'm really interested in sleep. Let me make, you know, it's certainly not where you are right now. So where did it all start? Yeah, it actually all started back in engineering school. And, you know, I'd be up late at night, pounding problem sets up early in the morning, and I was just exhausted. And I think that, that was pretty normal. Everyone else around me was exhausted. And I just felt, you know maybe my sleep has something to do with how I feel. 
I honestly, I didn't know at the time, but I was trying, you know, different nutrition regimens and different exercise regimens. And of course, drugging myself with caffeine. And I just thought, you know, maybe there's some insights in sleep. And so, you know, I started doing sleep science research. And honestly, I just wanted to find what do I need to do with my sleep so that I have more energy during the day? Like, what do I need to do? Like, is it more REM sleep? Is it more deep sleep? Do I need to change up what I'm eating? Do I need a new mattress? Do I need to like, you know, just take melatonin, like lay it on me. And I just had so many questions. I just begged my school sleep science department to take me on as an apprentice. And that's really where it all started for me, where I published my first academic paper. I think I mentioned it briefly there, which is such a kind introduction. But my first academic paper was on how do you take all this data that's being generated from wearables and use it to actually inform better sleep habits where people are going to notice meaningful changes and ultimately how they feel. And so that's really kind of where it started for me and where kind of this turned into a business. And I I honestly, I didn't expect it to. My co-founder and I didn't expect it to. You know, we're nerdy engineers. Was our school's football team found out about this research? And they asked if we could come and do this same thing for the team. And so we're got around all these other teams. And before we knew it, you know, working with name an NFL team, name an NBA team, name a big college, and we've worked with them. And so I had many years where I got to work very closely in the lead athletic world. And, you know, I'd say in around 2018, the focus really began to shift to this, you know, notion that we could help many more people than just lead athletes feel better and have more energy. And so that's really what we've been up to, you know, the last couple of years and just excited to be able to share the things we found as a practitioner. And my accountability to you and everyone listening is that everything I say, actually, this is called the Oxford Handbook of Sleep and Sleep Disorders. So this is sort of the technical manual for all of sleep science. And so, you know, everything I say, I'm not going to get everything right but I should be pretty close to what's in here. And that's really important to everything we do. And you know, ultimately, sleep is about your health. And there's just so much mythology out there around what matters and what doesn't and how to think about your sleep. And so hopefully we can clear some of that up today. Ooh, I appreciate it. And you know what this topic is really tied to? It reminds me a lot of nutrition because everyone who sleeps thinks that they should just know how to sleep or everyone who eats just thinks that they should know how to eat. Right now I'm working with a breath coach. Everyone who breathes thinks they should just know how to breathe. And he likes to say, well, who taught you how to breathe? You know? And so there's more to it. And so it's a little tricky because we'd love to just sum it up in a sentence. And we certainly probably, I think you have actually mastered distilling it down a little bit in some capacities, but there's a lot of pieces or a lot of moving parts. And sometimes we don't want to hear it, Totally, (laughs) right? Which is where the wearables are a little more fun because they gave us data. As a side note, you know what my mind keeps going to is that something I ascertained from another interview once upon a time was that some people who have a bit of a mess with their sleep, a wearable actually induces more stress for them because of the data that it's giving them. hundred percent. And so, yeah, I'd love to hear what your kind of thought is on that first. Yeah. I mean, well, first, let me just share with you sort of the scientific observation. And then I can share with you my opinion as a practitioner. The scientific observation is there's something called orthosomnia, which is basically you become so fixated on trying to optimize the metrics that a particular wearable might be showing you that it does sort of increase uncertainty. You're not sure how to drive the different changes in your REM sleep or deep sleep and your restlessness is really high and it's telling you're not doing well. And so it can actually create a sort of not exactly insomnia, but a condition like it. And so it's certainly something to be aware of. And it's definitely begs the question, well, what should you do? Should you measure it? You know, should you not? Is it too dangerous? You know, my view is technology is a great potential lever that we have. And it can be used for great things. It can be used for not so great things. 
And so, you know, I think, frankly, and this is my big, I guess, caveat with a lot of the technology that's out there. And this is what we're trying to change in part, which is, can you stand up in front of a room full of sleep scientists and explain very clearly what you're doing and why? And would you get a consensus group to agree that the approach you're taking is correct? And we hold everything we do, every single product release to that lens. And if we can't do it, we won't ship it. And that's not true about every other sleep product I know in the market and the claims that they're making, or at least it makes me uncomfortable. And so, and I don't blame those companies for doing it. It's just that, you know, unless you have really deep expertise around sleep science and the people building the product understand it, you're going to end up making mistakes. And mistakes are sometimes okay, but I think they can lead to what we've seen with orthosomnia, where you're trying to optimize for a sleep score that frankly doesn't exist. They made up, there isn't a sleep score. You know, or they're telling your sleep quality is 82. And guess what? Scientists don't even agree on what sleep quality means. So now you're like, well, my sleep quality isn't good enough. And my device is telling me I'm really restless. And now you're worried about something that isn't actually a real problem or your deep sleep is too low. And guess what? You know, none of that really matters for how you feel. And that's a pointed perspective and I can share more about it. But I think that's what it needs to change is that everything that we do, it's dealing with people's health. This isn't entertainment. And we need to be taking this very, very seriously. So happy to go into more detail and get off on my pedestal for a second, but you know, lay it on me. Well, we have the same thing in nutrition, of course, right? Orthorexia, orthosomnia, orthorexia. It's like, it's an obsession more so, right? It right. becomes obsessive to where it's like, it's now a new barrier or hindrance. Or my favorite way to talk about it is it's like, oh, it's a noble obstacle. Like I've created this obstacle for myself accidentally, right? And so it's yeah. awareness and recognition of that. Yeah, exactly. And what's really challenging with the wearables and apps that are out there is that the metrics that are there aren't necessarily things that you can control or should try to control. Mm -hmm. And so that's where then things get problematic, particularly. And so anyway, yeah, it's uh, tangents. Yeah, exactly. No problem. All right. Well, you know, it's a big topic. We try to oversimplify it. As I say to my clients, it's not an accident that we're supposed to sleep a third of the day, guys. So let's yep. talk about where you start and what is actually important related to sleep. Like, how do you start to help someone understand what is the most important part of sleep and quality? Yeah, well, you know, so this was the single question that I wanted to know. And so I think today there's this growing recognition that sleep really matters and not just matters for your energy, but matters for every aspect of how you function, right? How you function emotionally, how you function physiologically, things like immunity and skin health and libido and whatever you want to talk about physiologically. And then on the cognitive side, how focused you are, how creative you are, you know, all of those aspects. And so sleep is like oxygen. And when you don't get it, all of those things go away, every single physiological system. So I think that is something that today is more known. What's not known today and when I say not known, I just mean not known in, for the common person that when I bring this up and not even the common person, by the way, like people that are building products in the space don't know is how do you get all these benefits of better sleep? What does better sleep even mean? And how do you get all the benefits? Well, luckily for us, you know, there's been about a hundred years of sleep science research. And in that last hundred years, I will be venture to say that in my opinion, the most important finding in all of the scientific discoveries that sleep scientists have made something called the two-factor model of sleep and wake regulation. I know it sounds a lot, it's a mouthful, but it's kind of like the laws of physics for sleep. And it basically says, if you want to get the goodness of sleep, if you want to actually get the emotional benefits, the cognitive benefits, physiological benefits, all the things that you probably already talk about and people know, there's only two ways to get it. 
And this is actually reaffirmed. This theory came out in the early 80s. It was reaffirmed in 2016. Like this is still the dominant mode of thinking. And so the two levers that you have in your control, one is something called sleep debt, which is a measure of how sleep deprived you are. And the way that this works, I'll just tease it out a little bit for everyone here and we can go deeper here is that we each have a genetic amount of sleep we need, just like our height, our sleep need is genetic. It actually, most of the evidence does not suggest that it changes over time, at least once you hit, you know, adulthood. And once you do, it's the average is slightly over eight with a 35 minute standard deviation. So that means, you know, most of us need between seven and a half and nine, but it's totally normal to need a little bit more than that. Totally normal to be someone who needs less than that. And if you don't get that amount of need every night, then you build up debt and it can accrue up to about a month. In our research, we've really seen the last 14 days where it make the big difference. And to give you just a sense of scale, you know, everyone's like, well, is it last night that matters? Or is it two nights ago that matters? Is it three nights ago that matters? It's actually the last 14. Last night matters the most, but it might only account for about 15% of the overall weighting might feel on any particular day. And so that's sleep debt. And we actually do have a study that just got accepted for publication with athletes in the NFL, the NBA. We follow salespeople because their jobs are very measurable. So we found these folks that we're working with where their job outcomes were very measurable And what we showed is that sleep debt predicts how they perform. So in the NFL, their game day performance. In the NBA, their three-point percentage, their point-per-minute efficiency. In sales, literally how much you can sell. And it's not just in those fields. What should be clear is that anything that you do is going to be affected by not just your sleep, more specifically, sleep debt will be the thing that matters. So that's one. Two is something called the circadian rhythm. And I think you've brought it up at least a couple times on the show. But the way I like to talk about it is you've got a clock in your head, It's called the SCN. Many of you might have heard of this. And what's fascinating is it's controlling at a cellular level how much ATP production is happening at any given time during the day. So I mean, like we're talking about energy, not in this fuzzy sort of like, oh, how much energy I'm going to have, my biological rhythms. We're talking about like ATP production, like the fundamental unit of energy in biology. And so that's what we're talking about. And it's affecting every organ system. So as a result of this, we have sort of peaks in our energy and sort of, again, all of those systems, emotional, physiological, and cognitive, that ebb and flow throughout the day. And so that means you have times to be at peak performance, times where you're not, and times where you should be sleeping, and times where you shouldn't. And so that's what you need to know kind of about circadian rhythms. And there's obviously a lot there. And just like your sleep need, your circadian rhythms are also very individual, which is something we can talk about. But the sort of game is, if you want to improve how you feel, you've either got to get your sleep debt down, Or you've got to rearrange your day, not based on your time, but based on when you have your peaks and dips in energy. That's it. So and it's not my opinion. That's like, you know, what we've seen as a scientific field, which is pretty exciting. So the average amount of sleep most people need is between seven to nine, right? Like most people are going to fall between seven to nine, right? Yeah. So you'll see like the National Sleep Foundation come out with that recommendation. And what's misleading about that is people think, oh, I need somewhere between seven to nine every night. Like if I get seven, I'm fine. Or if I get nine, I'm fine. And that's absolutely not the case. We each have just like, you know, I'm a little over five, six. My sleep needs eight hours and 15 minutes. Like those are biological traits that are genetic traits about me. And it's totally normal to be someone who needs nine. It's totally normal to need seven. So it really matters is where really getting an understanding of where you are on that spectrum so that you know what your body needs so that you can then, you know, prioritize your life accordingly and make the right trade-offs. And how is your optimal amount of hours calculated? How do you pick eight hours, 15 minutes versus eight right. hours or whatever? So 
Yeah. So the best way, and it comes from the empirical finding that you actually cannot physiologically oversleep. So your body will wake you up once you've had enough sleep. And so what happens is the way you actually figure this out in a laboratory environment is you get as much sleep as you possibly can for about a week. And what you'll see is night one, you'll get a bunch of sleep, let's say 10, nine hours. The next day you might get nine, eight hours. And over time, by the end of the week, if you're in a cool, dark, you know, an optimal sleep environment, again, this obviously assumes you don't have any actual sleep issues or sleep disorders. So assuming you're a normal, healthy sleeper, by usually day seven, somewhere between day seven to day 14, your sleep is going to level off. And it's going to be somewhere between, again, on average, you know, like you said, somewhere between seven and nine. And where that number is, is what your biological sleep need is. Now, most of us don't do these sort of sleep cleanses. So one of the things we do in the app is actually we'll estimate that for you. We have some predictive algorithms that do that and look at your sleep patterns over the last year and we can estimate it. But the way to do it in the lab is, you know, like I just explained. Yeah. I went through this earlier before our interview. So basically it's looking at phone movement because we're assuming that everyone touches their phone before and they go to bed and when they get up in the morning and they use it for yeah, well not Yeah, not everyone. It's about 80%. And it's a science technique called tapigraphy. And sort of what is scary though, is they found that actually using that technique can be more accurate than wearables. Because mm-hmm. when you're using your phone, we for sure know you're awake. Whereas with wearables, you actually don't always know if your wrist is in a particular mm-hmm. orientation or a certain amount of movement, whether or not you're awake or asleep. So again, I think this paper was in Nature, came out in 2018, 2019 on this technique, and just very eye-opening, you know, and so taking advantage of that behavior. And then ultimately, there's other ways about, let's say a fifth of folks will integrate another sleep tracking app or a device with Rise. So that's great. Those of you that have Apple Watch, Apple just released native sleep tracking, which is really cool. And one of the things they did, which is awesome, and they deserve a ton of credit for, is they didn't show you sleep quality. They didn't show you your REM and your deep and not because they couldn't. It's because they made the strategic decision that that was not good for consumers. And I also agree with them that that when you just show those metrics without anything else, it can be very misleading and, you know, lead to orthosomnia, lead to worrying about things that aren't actually material. So they literally just show you how much time you're sleeping every night, which is actually, you know, a very important number. All right. Two-factor model of sleep and regulation, I believe is what we're talking about. So we've got our sleep sleep and wake regulation. Sleep and wake regulation. Thank you. So we've got our sleep debt calculated over essentially one to two weeks or longer, right? Really last two weeks to what we've seen in our research, but there is peer-reviewed papers that show it can be actually 30 days. Okay. And you can accumulate somewhere between 20 to 40 hours. Okay. So, right. You can accumulate over the month. As you said, it accrues over 14 to 30 days is what my notes say. I'm I'm recapping because it's simple yet. I want it to sink in really well here. So we've got our appropriate amount of sleep is, which is, what do we call that? It's it's just called sleep need. That's what it's called in the scientific literature. Yeah. And I'll try and call out like scientific terms versus non-scientific terms. But yeah, if you look in, you know, any paper that's actually called sleep need. Okay. So if we're not hitting our sleep need hours, exactly. We're accruing sleep debt. Now let's talk a touch more about circadian rhythm because the many tabs open in my browser right now are all (laughs) circadian rhythm. Actually, it is so amazing and so cool. And also, you know, it's very light driven. You were talking about the SCN or super charismatic nucleus. I think I'm saying it right. So I want to talk about circadian rhythm a little bit more before we get into some of those practical sleep questions that people would have. So 
Tell me, you've given us the definition, right? It's this clock. It's controlling how much energy is produced. And it also affects your peaks and dips in energy. But let's talk about what programs this at a fundamental level. Yeah. So, you know, it's a clock, right? So just like any other clock, there's a way that that clock keeps time. It needs to keep track of time. And in our iPhones, I mean, if you turn off your airplane mode and you switch time zones, you lose track of time, right? And things get off. So, and it used to be you'd wind your clock and you'd sync it and, you know, back in the day. So the way that our biological clock, it actually keeps track of time and stays on sync. So it's called circadian rhythm and I'll break down the language. So circa is a Latin for around, dian is day. So this is referring to the around a day biological rhythms that we observe across again, almost every single physiological and emotional and cognitive process that we know of. And so that's where circadian is. And so this clock basically resets about every 24 hours. So the question is, yeah, what sets that? And is it movable and what's going on? So just like your sleep need, and just actually like your sleep debt, and just like about most things in life, your circadian rhythm and the timing of that clock is very unique to you. So a couple of things to be mindful of. So the way we measure this clock. Everyone listening to this has probably heard, oh, I'm a morning person or oh, I'm a night person or I'm a lark or an owl. Biologically, if you peel back what's happening under the scenes, the way that you measure this is you actually put someone in under dim light conditions and then you actually have them do the saliva sample test. And then you go back to the lab and you actually look at how much salivary melatonin there is. This is called a dim light melatonin onset. That's the technical term. People call it DILMO, DLMO. And so at the moment that you start to see that the melatonin is rising under dim light conditions, that's when you can say, okay, Jeff's Dilmo is at 1130 at night. And Krista, yours might be at 2am or 3am. And so that Dilmo, meaning the time that your brain is releasing melatonin under dim light is actually the marker of, are you a morning person or are you a late person? And so that's really, really key to understand because all of us have different Dilmos. And it's going to be based on a couple factors. At least there's three that really matter. One is actually going to be your age. So how old are you? It turns out that basically from when you're born to about age 20, you get really, really late at age 20. It's the latest you'll ever be. And then every year after age 20, you get slightly earlier. On average, men are about an hour later than women. Again, on average, everyone's going to be different there. And what is determining that is the big genetic component from your family. So are your parents late people? Are they early people? That's going to have an influence on your own clock. How old are you? Are you man? Are you woman? That whole thing is going to then have an an impact. So that's sort of things that are out of your control. What's in your control is when you get light, when you don't get light. And then most people here probably take a melatonin. If you happen to take melatonin at the wrong time, it can also screw up this rhythm and change that natural timing. Hmm. So melatonin is not a sleep aid. I think maybe you even talked about this, but if you take it at different times, actually sleep scientists call it a chronobiotic. And so depending on when you take melatonin, you can actually actually shift whether or not you're going to release melatonin naturally earlier or later. And so we can talk more about that too. And those things, the light and melatonin, and I'd say light is the main one, is something called a zeitgeiber, which is sort of a German word for time giver, literally giving the circadian clock its time. And Will so- you spell that? Yeah, Z-E-I-T-G-E-I-B-E-R, zeitgeiber. So that's what's sort of going on with this clock. And the reason it really matters is I'll give you a couple sort of unique zones that we should all be aware of and that we all felt. We maybe felt them intuitively and we haven't put sort of language around them. The first is 
I would bet that most of you, when you wake up, don't feel very good and you're groggy. So like that is totally normal. It is totally expected. And actually it is unexpected to feel really alert when you wake up. And I think that's a myth. This is again, now I'm sort of going on like, I don't have data to prove this, but I think it is a myth that has been perpetuated by all of the hundreds of millions of dollars every year spent by advertising for sort of like sleep aids and mattresses and, you know, just lay on our mattress. When you wake up, you're going to just feel amazing or take our pill and our supplement. You're going to wake up and feel amazing because your sleep quality is going to be better. And that is mythology that doesn't exist. So you actually should be groggy for about an hour and a half upon awake. Then as you go throughout your day, you're going to have a peak of energy in the morning. And again, if you're later early, obviously these times are going to be totally different. So these times could vary up to eight hours between people. So I mean, very, very different. But in general, in the morning, you're then going to have a dip in the early afternoon. And then you're going to have a second peak in the early evening. And then you'll actually have something what we call in in our app, a melatonin window. But what we've talked about on this podcast is the DLMO, the dim light melatonin onset. That is the time when under dim light, your brain is releasing melatonin and is the best time to be sleeping. So there's this biological signal that your body's trying to get you ready for sleep. And so being able to understand that and plan your evening based on that is actually quite important. And so those are sort of the main zones and things to be aware of. So for example, you know, if you're going to have a really hard conversation with a partner or a coworker, or you've got a really important presentation or, you know, something that really matters, don't plan it in a dip. Don't plan it in that person's dip because they're not going to be where they need to be. So being sort of circadian aware is actually really important. Actually at Rise, we have a tool that, you know, Rise measures all this stuff. And so we have a tool that in our Slack channel where we do all of our team chat, I can see everyone's energy, how much energy they have that day and where they are within their energy schedule. So I know Lola's in a dip and I know that she's like very low on energy today. So uh, probably not time to give her like the hard feedback from, you know, yesterday, but she's doing really well. I know she's gonna be able to handle it better and allows us to have a much more human relationship. Same thing. So it becomes this tool that you can use to talk about how you're doing in a way that hopefully brings people closer together. Oh, that's a pretty interesting use of data. Really. <laughs> Quite an applicable use. What a nice boss. So I want to mention something that pops into my head about melatonin. Some people take melatonin and feel the opposite effect of what they should. Can you speak to that? Like, it's like, I feel more awake after that, you know, or kind of funny. What do you think about this? Yeah. So, you know, the science is clear that if you take melatonin before bed, it has no difference compared to placebo for sleep outcomes. There's also been studies on side effects. And for the most part, in terms of what we've been able to find or detect and measure, so far, no negative side effects of taking exogenous melatonin. Now, that being said, I feel like putting something into your body that a hormone as powerful as melatonin, it's one of the most powerful antioxidants we have in the body. It's not just responsible for a cascade of sort of sleep effects, but a lot of other areas as well. Again, I'm not going to say it's bad because we don't have documented effects that it's bad, but is it something that I'd probably do naturalistically, right? Our bodies aren't expecting melatonin in pill form. And we can talk about naturalistic sleep, which is a term that Matt Walker coined, and I think is just a phenomenal term. And if you've read Why We Sleep, I think he talks about it in that book, but I just love that term. I think it's super useful. We can get into it later. So while there's no negative documented effects, it is a very powerful hormone we're putting into our body. And so I'm wary of doing that because there's no upside. Then the question is, okay, well, why is melatonin? I mean, we spend about a billion dollars a year on melatonin supplements just in the US and there's zero documented effect. 
right? So what's going on with it? Well, I think one, there's a lot of reasons why I think that's happening. Where it is useful and where it does get prescribed, if you go to a sleep scientist, behavioral sleep medicine specialist, is there are folks whose dim light melatonin onsets are either very early or very late. There's nothing wrong with them, in my opinion. They're just a little bit out of the ordinary, just like there's folks that are six foot eight and seven feet tall and, you know, four foot five. There are people that have dim light melatonin onsets at 4 a.m., 5 a.m. and, you know, seven o'clock when you want to be having dinner or hanging out. So in that case, you can use both light therapy and melatonin timing, which is very specific. You should only do it under the care of someone who really knows what they're doing to time when you take melatonin. And so you actually don't take it before bed because it has no effect. You end up taking it either right when you wake up, which is actually more non-consensus, or you end up taking it sort of very specific hours depending on your circadian rhythm. And so overall, I would say if you're planning on doing that, like don't just do it willy-nilly. You should be talking with a behavioral sleep medicine specialist about it and isn't something that you should be taking every night. Now, that being said, if you take it every night and you rely on it and you like it, you know... I also don't have any evidence to say that I don't have any direct evidence. Let's not mess with something that is already, you know, working. So I would say in that case, if it's working for you, you know, keep at it. But I wouldn't be surprised if in five, 10, 15 years, we do start to have evidence that shows that maybe it's not as good as we thought and that we should encourage what is naturally happening. And there's ways that you can do that in, in a totally safe way. Yeah, it's interesting how now it's coming out as more of like the utility of it for an, as an antioxidant, right? It's in right. some recommendations around COVID. It's around egg quality, et cetera. So it's just sort of interesting. And thanks for also being another person who uses the word or the expression, don't just take things willy-nilly. I thought oh. I did that. So I appreciate that. Thank you so much for uh, being on team willy-nilly with me. So Yeah, I like willy-nilly. Yeah. So, you know, I was thinking about when I was thinking about natural release of melatonin, I wonder how you help being self-aware around this because I try to just tune in like, oh, I'm tired. I'm not going to be effective at anything I'm doing now. I'm going to go to bed <laughs> like I'm supposed to. Yeah. And I'm just going to yeah. get up. You know, I'm just going to continue to wake up at the time I would like to wake up and not whatever. And so I like that at this stage in my life, like that makes more sense. But a lot of people will push past fatigue or like the yeah. natural onset of like, oh, I'm tired. I think I should go to bed because it's like, oh, oh, this is the only time I can get things done. And so you create like a spike. And so it's hard to come off of that. And so I just need to call yeah. that out because I think it happens all the time, right? Yeah. So, you know, I haven't, and I actually haven't seen any literature on this sort of like cortisol spike that happens. Let's say if you miss your melatonin window, personally, I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I just haven't searched for it explicitly yet. I'd like to, because I think we hear it all the time, which is, Hey, I was up way past my melatonin window. And I just felt like I almost had this high that I could go and keep going. You know, and I just wasn't tired. Now there's a significant amount of documentation on the other end, which is if you wake up earlier than you normally do, then absolutely your cortisol awakening response is fundamentally different than if you get your sleep need. And we get, you know, decrease in testosterone and your cortisol testosterone ratio gets all out of whack and all of that stuff. And so, yeah, I think that there's a couple things that are worthwhile talking about that are very actionable. One is, again, this gets back to this concept of naturalistic sleep. You want to get out of the way of your body, right? And hear me out on sort of what this means, which is that we have evolved as living things for many millions of years on all the biological systems that we have. And so it is very unnatural to be under incredibly strong lighting you know, before bed. It is unnatural to be in a really you know, hot or really light environment. 
So, you know, very tactically, cool, dark, quiet, like a cave, and don't do things that normally wouldn't be happening. So, you know, if you have a massive meal right before bed, like that's not going to be very good. If you, you know, are taking drugs of any kind, you know, that's obviously going to have an impact. And we don't always know what those impacts mean for sleep. But I think what the evidence today would suggest is that you want to, again, get out of the way and let it be as natural as possible. And we don't actually need to hack it or we actually need to unhack it. So for example, I don't know if you've seen these blue light blocking glasses or heard about them. So there's a lot of good science behind them. There's actually a paper just published, I believe in the last couple of weeks that showed that at least with a two hour eye fatigue test on a computer, it doesn't do anything for eye fatigue, which for some reason people buy them for, oh, blocks out the glare on my computer. I don't know if that's true. But when it comes to blue light, if you get the right orange glasses, it will block out blue spectrum light and you'll have significantly more natural melatonin production than you otherwise would have if you had you know, glasses that didn't block out that blue light. Now, blue light comes from every light source. If you're showering, blue light's coming out. If you're on your computer, blue light's coming out. And so putting these glasses on is really, really essential if you're sort of under and barraging your eyes with all of this external light pollution. And so, you know, that's something that I've done, you know, since I first learned about this years ago, and I've done every single night, my wife and I do it every night, and it obviously is preposterous the first time you do it, then you end up feeling so much better. And the evidence is incredibly clear. So that's one area too, where we don't actually need to supplement with melatonin, there may be a different biological path, but by getting out of the way by saying, hey, blue light, get out of here, literally blocking it, you're able to trick your brain into producing the melatonin that it otherwise normally would. And there's a lot of really strong evidence about how important that is. Yeah. Um, so that's also one thing too, about an hour and a half, two hours before going to bed by doing that. It's just one of these other subtle behavioral triggers that you can say, okay, like now I've got orange glasses on. And then like an hour and a half later, you start really feeling sleepy. That can be your kind of signal to, to, to start getting in bed. Yeah. Let's talk about some tangible things. I know that people would want to ask because I talk to them every day. And so <laughs> okay. this is... I feel like this is a uh, common but not normal, where as we age, people are more content with less sleep, right? They are like, I'm yeah. fine on four or five hours. Let's talk yes. about what's going on there. Yeah, super common. So first of all, let me just caveat this with like, I'm not a sleep physician, so I can't comment on like sleep disorders, although I can give you what I believe the literature says about it. And I'm also not a sleep expert. I mean, I know a lot about the field. I know a lot of the papers. I've like worked in the field for a long time. I have published a couple papers. But like, I'm not an expert. And so my commitment to you is, you know, as much as possible, trying to separate out my opinion from, you know, what the science says. So what's going on with this four to five hours? Researchers have asked this question, which is, how is it that basically after a week of getting seven hours of sleep, as opposed to eight, your cognitive performance can be as if you're at the legal limit for alcohol. So there's more fatigue driving accidents than there are drunk driving accidents. So literally after a week, let's assume you need, and you get seven for a week. At the end of that week, I'll just repeat that, you will be performing cognitively like you're at the legal limit for alcohol. Now, most of us would be thrilled to get seven. So what's going on? These researchers wanted to know- You mean if you're supposed to get eight and you're only getting seven? Thank you. Let's assume that you need eight, your biological need is eight, and you're getting seven. So you build up, you know, let's assume at the end of the week, around seven hours of sleep debt in that week. If you have seven hours of sleep debt- your cognitive performance declines as much as if you were fully sober and at the legal limit for alcohol. So the sleep debt's having a big effect. So how is it that you can basically be walking around cognitively performing at the legal limit for alcohol, yet subjectively, people think they're doing just fine. Yeah, I feel all right. What's going on? And it could be at four hours or five hours. 
So, and I can send you this paper. It's just a fantastic one. But what they did was they set up an experiment where they had four groups of people that were getting different amounts of sleep. You know, one group getting eight, one group getting six, one group getting four. And they had them get that every night for 14 days. And every day they would measure two things. One is their subjective state of sleepiness through a a questionnaire called the KSS, Karolinska Sleep Scale. And that's a subjective measure. I think it's, I forget exactly how many questions it is, but it's a number of questions and they add up all the points and give you a score of how subjective sleepy you are on a scale of one to four. Then they're actually doing an objective measure of what's called your psychomotor vigilance. So basically how alert your brain is. And it's kind of like uh, the way to think about it is just a reaction time test that you can't learn or gain. So that's the objective measure of performance. And then they have your subjective measure of your performance. And what you see is basically after three days, if you're in the non-eight-hour group, so you're in the six-hour group or the four-hour group, basically after three days, you know, from days three to day 14, even though you're getting, you're really restricting your sleep, you don't feel any more sleepy. Yet if you look at your objective performance, it continues to get worse. So what's happening here is your brain is adapting to the level of sleepiness that you're under, which is obviously amazing because if you need to be awake and I've got a 22-month-old at home, you know, and when my wife and I came home with Claire for the first week, like, we needed to tell ourselves everything was going to be okay, even if it wasn't. You know, that was really important behaviorally. And so that's what the brain is doing. And it's tricking you into think that you're doing better than you actually are. But if you measure your objective performance, everything is just continuing to get worse and worse and worse. Mm-hmm. And so what's exciting about this, and there's actually a, there's a class at Stanford from a guy that used to teach it. His name is Bill DeMent, and he's sort of the, known as the godfather of sleep science. And he taught this class at Stanford for probably 30, 40, like so many years. And the tagline of this class was drowsiness is red alert. And what he meant by that is most people are okay going throughout their day feeling, you know, it's like one o'clock, one thirty. Yeah, I'm a little tired. You're yawning. And then you just go throughout your life. His point was, if you are at all feeling drowsy at all, you are significantly sleep deprived. And the opportunity is that if you get a little more sleep, you are going to perform better in every aspect of your life. And it's the most important you know, lever and driving how you feel, how you interact with other people. It is, you know, really the foundation of everything else that you go do. And so I think that's such a powerful message, but to people that are getting four or five hours, I think what's exciting is, you know, just think about how much better you can be your metabolism, your immune health, your cognitive performance, your emotional performance. I mean, so that's pretty exciting. So you think we've tamped down the hours and we kind of think we're performing, but really it's just a guy's. Yeah, your brain is trying to tell you that everything's okay when if you were to actually measure it, you're continuing to get worse. Exactly. Got it. Challenging question. Okay. Shift workers. There can't be a group of people who struggle more with circadian rhythm. Yep. What a subgroup of the World Health Organization, I think, classifies shift work. Don't quote me exactly on this, but like a class 1B or 1C, I don't don't know how their whole classification system works, but a carcinogen. Mm. So not good news. Uh, and if you're in shift work, it's really hard. You know, I actually, when I was 18, became an EMT. And so, you know, used to working weird shifts and it's not easy. It's not normal. And I would say that, you know, there's a lot of really important jobs to be done. And there is some research there on what to do to maybe help, but it is not an easy situation and is something that deserves a lot of thought and, you know, intention around what to do and how to plan thoughtfully for it, how to schedule thoughtfully for that. Because it has such a big impact on, you know, your waking self when you make such big changes. Mm -hmm. 
I have a book. It's old. I've been enjoying. I like will search for if I like the author, if I've read something else that they've done that's good. So one of the book I'm reading right now on circadian rhythm is old. Like the person who wrote it is probably dead. Um, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. There's a yeah. lot of good research that no one's talking yes. about really, honestly. Totally. And so somewhere along the research rabbit hole, I found one on like overcoming jet lag. I don't know what it was. It was like jet lag. And I think it's all like light manipulation stuff, but I can't wait to dig through it. And yep. I wonder if it could be used a bit. It can. Yeah. No, I mean, so I think what can be done here is what's hard is when you're really just trying to change your circadian rhythms and you're getting light when your SCN doesn't expect it. And then that desynchrony is really what's hard. I mean, we can shift our rhythms by about an hour a day. We can shift it about an hour later every day or an hour earlier. And so you can obviously shift. I mean, that's how we, when we fly overseas, we're able to adjust. The issue is just doing that every single day. I mean, it's very hard to sort of live your life during the night when everyone else during the day is you know, living their life. So it's just very, very difficult. And, you know, there's just biologically, there's no easy answer. Yeah. They're just, you know, is the unfortunate. It. It's, you know, awareness of it is step one, right? Yeah. Um, because yeah. then maybe we could make our shift days longer at one set and move them. So it's not so it, back it, and forth all the time. Maybe. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that those are, you're gonna have to attack it from all angles, you know, of like, what can we do from a scheduling standpoint? What can we do from a circadian health standpoint? What can we do from a, you know, you have to, what can we do from a policy standpoint? you know, how do we attack it from as many angles as possible? Right. And that's really something we should be looking at more in healthcare from a policy standpoint, because the number one, you have notes, you know, before you came on, how sleep is the number one cause of burnout. Sleep issues would be the number one cause of burnout. And I just think about all of those RNs, right? Run in the world. My sister sent me a message the other day. Well, what was it? I can't remember what she did in the ER. Wasn't the ER nurse. Delivered a baby in the radiology room with the radiology tech as my assistant. Wasn't the OB nurse. (laughs) I'm like, oh my gosh. It was hilarious, but also horrible because that is the reality of her everyday shift. Um, Yeah. This is rule to run the world. Yeah. No, I mean, it's really, really difficult. And there's really kind of scary research on, and again, from a policy standpoint of just the number of hours you're expected to be on the job fundamentally means you're not sleeping fundamentally means that everything every one of your biological systems is not functioning properly so not only are you by going into the field of helping others cutting your own life short increasing you know the the likelihood of all of these you know long-term chronic issues and acute issues but you're also putting other people's lives at risk and so i don't understand you know why from a hippocratic oath standpoint you know, that it's not more clear. And the data is clear. But then everyone will say on the medical side, well, we need continuity of care. And if we have shorter shifts, and people are more well rested, then there's less continuity of care. You know, we've been able to figure these things out in other fields, uh, in higher risk fields. So, you know, yeah, you know, so um, there's there's a lot to do there. Right. No, there is. And we're not here to solve all the world's problems. But let me recap a little bit. (laughs) We talked about how sleep debt is a more important metric than REM or deep sleep and understanding circadian rhythm and your sleep need. And if you're not getting your sleep need, you're accumulating sleep debt over 14 to 30 days. So thank you for sharing that. We underestimate how much sleep we get. You talked about that when we talk about, you know, how getting feeling good on those four hours, like BS, maybe that might be the situation, right? It's subjective, not objective. Stress and sleep are an issue, right? And we talked a little bit about cortisol versus sleep. Just briefly touched on burnout and some of the potential here. We talked about, you mentioned depending on the person, there's going to be dips in energy. And at your company, you actually look at those dips and we didn't get into the algorithms there, which are in the app a little bit. 
Last thing, and I think we will mention this because a lot of times I will avoid this topic because it can be a little racy, but there's some research on sleep in response to vaccinations. And I have some thoughts on like what would happen in the immune system because I see this in practice. There's a lot of things like when I change food, sometimes it'll improve sleep and it's inflammatory mediators. So what are your comments around research related to this? Because I definitely have parents complain about it. Yeah. You know, I mean, this is, I think, one of the areas, in my opinion, where I don't understand why the CDC didn't talk about this more, given the strength of the research. And so, you know, there's a study that basically found, at least with the vaccine side, now here's what we don't know. I don't think there's a paper, and there may be a new one, but I haven't seen it yet, specifically about COVID. So let me just get that off the table. With COVID in particular, I don't know. All we know is that your sleep debt is directly linked to how your immune system functions in a way that no other sort of lever we have on our health or wellness has that much of an impact. So just to give you a sense here on scale. So this was done at Carnegie Mellon, I forget a couple years ago, but basically what these researchers did is they had two groups of people. They had one group that was getting eight hours and they had one group getting seven. They did have groups getting less than that. The seven hour group as compared to the eight hour group for a week were 294%, about three X more likely to catch the common cold. So literally they had the seven hour group, the eight hour group, the six hour group come in there. They put the common cold virus in their nose. And if you're getting eight hours of sleep, you're getting seven hours of sleep as compared to the eight group, you're 300% more likely to catch the cold. So I mean like huge impact, like three times as likely to just catch a cold when you come into contact with it. And it's not just the cold. When you look behind the scenes, it's sort of the immune response you know, fundamentally, you see a massive change too. So this isn't like, you know, a 5% change, a 1%, oh, get sleep, it's gonna, it's like, the amount of sleep debt that you have is going to directly affect whether or not you get sick. It's also going to directly affect how well the vaccine, how your immune response. So how many antibodies are you producing? And then, you know, that's going to affect what's happening. So we haven't seen a study yet on sleep and the COVID vaccine. But if we did, it would be based on what we know, it'd be incredibly shocking for there to be no effect. So, you know, I would imagine that one of the things that we can all do as apart from, you know, social distancing, mask wearing, you know, all the things the CDC wants, getting the vaccine is getting our sleep debt down. And if our sleep debt's down, we're also going to be in a much better position to fight off the pathogens that we do come in contact with on a daily basis. That wasn't where I thought that answer was going to go, but I'm glad I asked the question. And I'm also really glad I wasn't in that study. How how much would that (laughs) suck? I know. They're like, hey, come here. Like, we're going to inject some cold virus into your nose. Like, thanks. But I would say, like, this is the number one thing. Like, your eyes are starting to hurt or you have, like, the slightest bit of a sore throat. I'm just like, nope, I'm going to go ahead and shut down all work, shut down everything early, and I'm, like, going to go to bed early. Like, the end. Yeah. Because it makes the difference between staying healthy and not staying healthy, right? And this is the challenge on travel and all those things because you tend to stay up late or whatever. And that's why I'm like, I purposely give myself immune support at that time. Right. And I try yes. to like, I try to be quite diligent because I'm old and I'm boring and I would rather just not get, <laughs> not get <laughs> right. Yeah, so. no, but my view is like, you know, if you want to have a more exciting life, you want to live longer, like you should sleep more because then the, the minutes that you have, you're much more in tune. So I remember, I mean, this is now years ago, but I was getting married and like, my goal was I want to have, you know, sleep debt be under an hour, which is very good. I'm usually very at like five or six. Yeah, very nerdy. But I was like, I want to take it all in. I want to be at my emotional peak. I want to be able to remember it. And, you know, I didn't remember once I had Clara, I didn't remember the next 10 weeks because I wasn't getting any sleep. But, you know, I did remember my wedding day and I remember what it felt like. And, you know, I had very low sleep debt. So, you know, that too, if you actually want to have a better life, 
Like that's where to focus and just start. We can all do it, you know, and it just takes a lot of attention and intention to get it right. Mm. Well, we could have kept talking about sleep. It's such a fun topic to talk about. People are obviously very interested in sleep with the amount of melatonin that is sold every year, right? It's a huge (laughs) thing. It's a huge thing. I did. And I will give this plug here because Jeff, you're the co-founder of the Rise Science app and I um, downloaded it and kind of went through it again today. It's very intuitive. It's like fun to flip through. So just for fun, it's good to download it and look at it. And now that you've (laughs) given us that it's scientific to use how we touch our phone as a measure of how we're sleeping, I feel more confident about going down the rabbit hole of uh, looking at sleep debt and then comparing, you know, I do have a wearable and it's like interesting yet. I could also agree with you on feelings about like the utility big picture. It's just fun to kind of see like how good is sleep in general? How do I feel? Like this has been a great conversation. So thanks for coming on today. And what do you have? What do you want to say if anything about where we can find rise science or if it's got a, a website platform aside from the app? Yeah. So, I mean, you can go to risescience.com and we have, you know, everything that we talked about. We have an incredible team that put together a sleep guide that basically has sort of documented these principles online for free. And, you know, you can read all the peer reviewed science if you want, and we try and make it really easy and understandable, but also, you know, deep enough for you to understand what's actually happening mechanically. So, you know, that's for free online. And then if you want to give the app a try, you can just go to the app store and type in rise you can type in sleep app, you can type in energy will pop up. And you know, you can give it a try. And it, it is a seven day free trial. A lot of people get pissed that it's not free. But you know, we're running a business. And we've got to support the people that are putting their heart and soul into it. And you know, we've got to get paid somehow to make it work. So we would appreciate the support there. And I guess the last thing I would say is, um, if you do have a wearable, it's even better. So if I don't know if you're wearing an aura ring, but we love aura. That's what it looks like. And just all the wearables are doing a great job. And, you know, as, as upset I am as with some of the metric visualizations and explanations and choices there, overall, I think it's a, a huge, huge benefit to the world. And Rise also pairs with that stuff too. So you can port the data in, feel really confident about it. And hopefully we can help you have a little bit more energy. And I'd say if there's any two things to share about with anyone else and hopefully the takeaways, you know, sleep debt really matters. Your circadian rhythm really matters. And, you know, whether or not you do anything else with your sleep, you know, hopefully you remember those two things. Well, thanks for coming on today. I definitely really enjoyed it. And um, I think regarding the wearables, it increases awareness and accountability, which is how we instigate change, right? You know, that's kind of the basis of it, like curiosity. And it's fun because we like feedback, right, from ourselves. Yep. So anyway, thanks for coming on today, Jeff. And yeah, thank you. It's been great. Rise Science. One of the best gifts you could give us at The Less Stressed Life is your feedback. We are paid in podcast reviews. If you enjoyed this or any other episode, please leave us a review. In the iTunes store or from your podcast app, just search for Less Stressed Life as if you're not already subscribed. Click on the banana face image, scroll to the bottom where it shows the text of other reviews, and write a review. While you're there, hey, make sure you hit subscribe. For Android or Stitcher users, you gotta go to the desktop site and search for Less Stress Life and then scroll down to leave a review. Stitcher doesn't load Apple reviews on their site, so if you want, you can leave a review in both places. Your feedback means a lot to the success of the show. Thanks so much for taking the time to do that. You rock. 